During football season this past autumn, many players, many African-American players, knelt in protest during the national anthem. In the words of our guest today, they were not speaking truth to power. They were mindlessly loyal to a black identity that had run its course. Close quote. Author Shelby Steele on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. We're shooting today from the Hauk Auditorium of the Traytel Building, a new building of the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. A native of Chicago, Shelby Steele taught English literature for a number of years at San Jose State University. Then in 1990, his book, The Content of Our Character, A New Vision of Race in America, established him as an author of national importance. Now a fellow at the Hoover Institution, Dr. Steele is the author of a number of books, including White Guilt, How Blacks and Whites Together Destroyed the Promise of the Civil Rights Era, and Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. Dr. Steele is also a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, where he recently published a column headlined, Black Protest Has Lost Its Power. Shelby Steele, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. The protests. Again, you wrote of the players who took a knee during the national anthem in this last football season. They were mindlessly loyal to a black identity that had run its course. Yes. Wow, that's quite a claim. Go ahead and but yeah. just, just explain what you, what you mean by that. There is, uh, um, blacks obviously have undergone in the course of America, the three, 400 years that America's been around, um, and victimized blacks and in slavery and segregation and all those things we, we're all very much aware of. Um, my point is that out of that came an identity, a group identity that has been for better and worse, focused, grounded in the idea of blacks as victims. And black victimization has become the sort of centerpiece of that identity. And that identity, I think, in the case of the NFL protesters, is sort of dislodged from reality and functions just pretty much on its own. So once, once uh, they felt called upon to make some symbolic protest against American racism, uh, they, they sort of mindlessly went along with that without ever stopping to investigate whether there really was uh, oppression, to what degree of, uh, of, of oppression is involved in, in, in American life today for, for blacks. My argument is that not very much. Mm. Uh, and yet the, the incongruence of not refusing to kneel for the national anthem when this country, despite its sins, also was a country that for the last 60 years has truly transformed itself morally. Um, and and America to, Americans today are a different people in regard to, to all these issues. And um, I thought the protest was, was, a, was an, a, a, um, an obsolescent gesture that uh, uh, made, that, that no one found much meaning in. You said in a recent interview on a <clears throat> Ricochet podcast, mm -hmm. Quote, this is not 
segregated America. I grew up in segregated America, so I know the difference. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about Shelby Steele as a young man. Mm -hmm. um, you, I have a few experiences here that you've written about, notably in Shame, your last book, and that I've heard you talk about because we've been friends for years. Your elementary school in a Chicago suburb. Mm -hmm. Your parents joined other parents in suing to change that. What was that school like? Uh, that school was an elementary school uh, in a school district where there were only two schools. One was all white and one was all black. And um, we would see the white kids drive to school in the school bus in the wintertime. And we were, well, we sort of... <laughs> you had to walk to school? We had to walk. Uh, we got their textbooks when, when they were worn out. Uh, so we got their teachers when the teachers began to have, have problems, a nervous breakdown or something. They'd be transferred <laughs> to our school, so you experienced it, was, it. Yes, it was abusive. It was. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It was uh, a, a horror, uh, and even among um, segregated schools, this one was particularly bad. My parents did. They actually led the protest. My mother and father organized the parents and boycotted that that school, and uh, so there were no students going to it. And eventually they prevailed, the teachers were, were fired, the principal was fired, uh, and a new school was, was, uh, was started up. So, beginning when you were a little boy, you saw real segregation yes. and real abuse. Everywhere. And protest when there was something to protest. Well, the, the, that's the point, I think. In the 60s, when you, we think about the protest that sort of began, became really severe in the, in the 50s and, and mounted all the way to the 60s, and I think of 1964 and the Civil Rights Bill as the point at which America capitulated and apologized. We were wrong. Here's a huge piece of legislation affirming our, our commitment to not do this anymore. Uh, now, that bill has a lot of problems that <laughs> have subsequently come to, to, to hurt us. But as a, as a historical gesture, um, it was, it was a, 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 one of the great moral acknowledgments of any society in ever. Uh, it was a really remarkable event. And blacks, in, in a sense, deserve an enormous amount of credit for protesting in that era, because there was every, anybody, there was no debate in America about whether or not there was racial discrimination. Everybody knew there was. Uh, the question was what we were gonna do about it. And blacks protest pushed that, uh, I think all the way to the point where America finally did capitulate. Rosa Parks was genuinely a great figure. She was genuinely Martin a great King figure. Martin Luther King Jr. is genuinely a historic figure. These people sacrificed enormously. They took every kind of risk imaginable. They achieved truly great, something truly great. Uh, it was a moment when black America, as I say uh, in the article, touched greatness. Uh, we extended the democracy past the barrier of race. Um, so historically, that was, that was, in a sense, our gift to America. Now, you write in shame about a trip that you took to Africa 
At the age of 23, let me quote Shame. This entire trip was organized around visits to cities like Algiers, cities associated with independence movements and revolutions that had swept the third world in the 1950s and 60s. I wanted to see if there was some counterpoint to the American way of life that was better. Yeah. And what mm -hmm. did you see? Well, <clears throat> I didn't find that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but I think... You know, I, I was coming of age. I was a college student. I was just out of college. I was working in uh, war and poverty programs. Um, and there was a point, because after, after the civil rights victories in the sort of late 60s, where black people began to, uh, began to create this identity that we call blackness, uh, and this, it was angry and it was resentful, um, and it was separatist. And there was the illusion in it somehow that we, could, we would get farther as a separate unified people than we would by joining America and becoming regular citizens. Um, I, will, I confess, I was caught up in that. I wanted to see, uh, and it was, what was so seductive about it is that it said, Blackness is the answer to all of your anxieties about life, what you should do, where you should, should I go to graduate school? Should, well, if you're, if you're just really focused on blackness, those issues kind of go away. At least that was the illusion. Um, I was seduced by that. Um, and so, yes, my wife and I took a trip to, uh, <clears throat> to Africa, beginning in Algeria, where we, we uh, excuse me, <clears throat> we met with um, the Black Panthers who were in exile there, and then we traveled uh, south of the Sahara and to Ghana, where, where Nkrumah had been the president, to Senegal, where Leopold Senghor, these great sort of romantic- Anti-colonialist figures. Anti-colonialist right? sort of revolutionary figures, you know, dramatic uh, to their countries. And uh, it was a good lesson, very learned, <laughs> very quick. Um, those countries were, were not doing well. They were uh, disorganized. They were overwhelmed with corruption. Um, there was no sort of common direction. They were lost. Um, and they, hadn't, <clears throat> they couldn't go back to being a colony again, and yet they also did not know how to go into the future and build an, uh, a new nation. So I learned a lot there. Uh, it, it transformed me. It made me realize that your racial identity is, is a passive thing. It's not, it's, your, your racial identity is not an agent of change. It is not going to build a new life for you. It is not going to do all the things that, that life calls upon you to do. For yourself. In fact, it's a delusion in which you can waste an awful lot of time. Mm. Back to your recent piece in the Wall Street Journal, Shelby. Quote, racism is endemic to the hu human condition just as stupidity is. We will always have to be on guard against it. But now, in the United States, it is recognized as a scourge. What has happened is that black America has con been confronted with a new problem, the shock of freedom, mm. close quote. Mm -hmm. 
the shock of freedom as a problem. Explain that. Well, if you have been an oppressed people, and we were obviously truly oppressed for centuries, we learned all sorts of things in order to survive that. Um, I won't go into a long list, but, but we, we learned how to reinvent ourselves. We learned how to live with the, this, this oppression, with this sort of negative force in your life. We, we were, I think, miraculous. We created a great music out of this. We, we did other things in, that, were, that had a worldwide impact. We expanded the idea of democracy. Um, and made, it, made freedom an absolute. We did all those things. The one thing we never did, never had a chance to do, was to live in freedom. We were never free. We were always in a position of calculating our fate through those who dominated us. We were never just free to, do, to invent ourselves as we wanted to. Uh, and that, the fact that beginning in the 60s when we began to confront freedom, when America backed up and said, okay, well, discrimination is wrong, here are a bunch of laws to support that, <clears throat> uh, we're confronted. Well, what do you do with freedom? Uh, what are you going to do now? Uh, and historically, it scared the hell out of us. We would be fantasizing if we denied that. Who wouldn't be? Freedom is a frightening thing. It, it places such a burden of responsibility on you, on the person who has it. Um, you're now responsible. Your reputation is based now on what you do. Um, well, combined with that was the fact that four centuries of oppression had left us, in many ways, underdeveloped. So when freedom comes, freedom then says, we're not oppressing you anymore. You're responsible for your underdevelopment. And um, you fix it or you don't, it's up to you. And uh, that was, you know, that it, it required, freedom requires a whole, a wholly different orientation toward the world. And we, we became afraid. And what happens then again, you, when you're afraid, you don't know how to move forward. You start to move backward. Shelby, <clears throat> the argument would be, and I know what the argument is because your piece in the Wall Street Journal created, let's put it this way, there was a response on the internet. You, could, <laughs> you can Google Shelby Steele and mm -hmm. some of the quotations I've just read and you will get a response. And the argument would be, no, 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 stop there. We're with you. Everything you've said makes perfect sense right up until you get to the point that we're free now. Mm -hmm. as, you, 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 as you say, the era of black oppression is over. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. There's still all kinds of racism endemic to this. How do you, how do you, or, or here's, here's, um, here's some st st statistics I found. Uh, 2015, black households at the 20th and 40th percentiles of household income, that is lower middle class and pretty poor people, earned an average of 55% as much as white households at those same two percentiles, and that's exactly the same, same figure as in 1967. And so the answer is, Dr. Steele, just look at the, we haven't, Afri I shouldn't say we, Af African Americans haven't made an iota of progress. Of course this has to be because we're still mm -hmm. oppressed. How do you deal with that argument, Shelby? Uh, it's, uh, it's a corruption. 
Um, and it's a corruption because if you look at that st the statistical difference uh, <clears throat> from then up, up to now, who says that's because of racism? Maybe it's because you, yet, you haven't yet developed the value system to uh, the ideas with which to thrive in freedom. Maybe you don't know what to do with the opportunities that surround you. Uh, it's understandable. You were oppressed. Um, and, <clears throat> and people have not pointed out to you the challenge of freedom. And what do people do with, with, with freedom when they don't know how to handle it? They reinvent their oppression, even as it has faded away. They make it up in their mind all over again. Racism is around every corner. Uh, there is systemic racism. There's structural racism. There are microaggressions, and, and there's white privilege. Uh, and all of, the, all of this, <clears throat> this is, is designed, again, to, is the shock of freedom. Uh, and not knowing, I mean, you look at today's black leadership, they have no clue of how to move ahead. All they can think to do is ask for more from the government. Well, we've asked for the, the government has given us almost everything. Nowhere in history has the government paid off its people uh, more than America has in the last 60 years. And yet we are, by most socioeconomic uh, measures, farther behind white America than we were in the 50s when we had none of these social programs and so forth. So it is, um, freedom is a, is a, it comes with a judgmentalism. It, it judges you. If you don't know how to thrive in freedom, it's, it's, it, it means that you are at fault. You are, in the worst word you can use regarding uh, blacks, you are inferior. It's a chilling idea, but it's at the heart. That's, it is the heart of the shock of freedom. Because freedom now is saying, you can't use oppression as an excuse anymore. If you're not doing well, it's not because of oppression. For, Christ, for goodness sakes, we've got affirmative action. We've got everything to help you. Uh, if, if you're not doing well now, it's on you. Um, and, and so one of my points about the protest, the NFL protests, and the same with, with uh, Black Lives Matter, is that there's this sort of hysteria, hysterical um, protesting that when they, they can't even articulate what they're protesting against. Well, if racism is so virulent, it ought to be obvious. When I was a kid, it was obvious. No one denied it. It was, it was visible to everybody every day. Um, and that was the beginning and the end of it. Today, where is it? Where are you being stopped? Well, I want to rise. I want to be a politician. I want to be the president. Okay. Um, you want to be the CEO of such and such a corporation. Okay. Uh, you can do anything you want. The reality and the, and the problem with, uh, that is, uh, uh, occupies black America today is the fact that we are at last a free people. Shelby, you said a moment ago, the federal government's given us everything. Here, let me read you. 
you know this well, President Johnson's 1965 commencement address at Howard University. Quote, you do not take a person who has been hobbled by chains and bring him up to the starting line of a race and say, you're free to compete with the others. Equal opportunity is essential, but not enough, close quote. So this notion that there has to be compensation for all those years of oppression is fundamental to all policy concerning African-Americans for the last half century and more. Mm -hmm. And what I want to know is, in your view, was Johnson correct in 1965, but that view is wrong now? That measures were necessary, affirmative action, transfer payments, all of that was necessary, but at some point it began to become, to hold African-Americans back? What, I, I just want to know mm -hmm. what you're thinking, or was it wrong to begin with, or do we still need it now? What is your thinking on that? It's well, so basic to, to the federal government's relationship with African-Americans, even today. Yes. Um, I remember that speech has been quoted. I, I've quoted it, I don't know how many times. Uh, you can't bring somebody up to the starting line and that's been oppressed and expect them to compete. What that is really about is not about black people. Because black people were in the position of, of coming into freedom. You can do what you want. You can help them or not. But they're going to have to deal with it in some way. That statement was about what I've written a good deal about, white guilt. And it was, it was a horrible uh, historical, as far as I'm concerned, mistake. Because what Johnson was saying was, we are going to, we, we oppressed you. Now we're going to lift you up and redeem you. You're still our responsibility. But your fate remains in our hands. Right. Your fate, you don't see your fate as being in your hands. It's now in our hands, the government's hands, every kind of philanthropic group's hands, everybody's hands but yours. And so it was, it, we then had to have had 60 years of white guilt. Why did, why did America spend, I've heard his, the figure as high as $22 trillion in that time, spent on all manner of welfare and programs and, and so forth, uh, educational programs, none of which have ever worked. Um, but it is, it's a, white guilt is a very specific thing. It is not a genuine feeling of guilt. Nothing to do with that. It is the terror the literal terror of being seen as a racist. Everybody knows in America that's the bottom line. If you are seen as a racist openly in public, you are ruined. You have no life. Whites live, and we have not acknowledged this enough, 90%, what Johnson was doing is saying, I can't have you call me, and I can't have you call this country a racist. Mm. And so I'm going to give you a whole bunch of things. I don't, and I worked in those programs, so I know, I know them intimately. They were just sort of what we would say, jump off the toilet programs. Uh, anything. We're just something we can throw money at to say we're not racist. We don't care whether it works. We have no, we have no, we're not going to follow up if it, we had school busing for how many decades, ruining the public school system. No one even, um, uh, ask a question about it. what was the point of that? Uh, all these bad ideas, school integration is going to, 
School integration did absolutely nothing. Uh, black students were, were still unable to compete uh, because the focus was on what the government was going to do and this sort of thing and not on what, uh, what black students do. So white guilt has been a real driver of these, these corruptions. And these, these football players down on their knees know that. And they know that the owners are going to capitulate and throw some, something their way. Roger and Goodell, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, quote, they're talking about equality issues, making sure that we're doing everything we possibly can, we in the NFL, are doing every, or we in the United States, actually, I'm not sure what he meant. We're doing everything we possibly can <clears throat> to give people an opportunity, whether it's education or economic. What do you make of that statement? What, what in the world has that got to do with football? That, has, that is, a, you know, just a perfect uh, white guilt statement. He's saying, he may as well just say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. <laughs> and he will find a way, is he have, I understand he has, give uh, uh, millions of dollars to some, some cause called social justice. Well, what is that? I can tell you what that is. That's a lot of hustling. That's a lot of black hustlers stepping forward to take that $100 million and put it in their pocket and, and, and make things. It's, it's, those, are the, those again, you, 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 you create a whole class of hustlers. You make black leaders. Black leadership today is pretty much uh, nothing left but hustlers uh, uh, who, who work white guilt. All right. So what is to be done? What is to be done? Let me, let's just work our way through a couple of the obvious problems here. We've got... Poverty, African-Americans are disproportionately poor. Two-fifths of African-American households receive food stamps. That's a much higher percentage than for any other ethnic group. And we've got inequality. <clears throat> I mentioned a moment ago that uh, the lower uh, income groups in, among African-Americans were earned only 55% as much as the same, their, their counterparts, their white counterparts. Turns out even if you go up the income scale, You've got upper class and middle class blacks earn about two thirds as much as their white counterparts, which is the same figure as half a century ago. So you've got disproportionate poverty. And even among African-Americans who are doing well, they're not doing as well as their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. What do you do? You, the first thing I think you do is you name the reasons why. And and certainly, racism is no longer a reason. If it is a reason, it is 18th or 20th on the list of reasons. It is not worth your time. It's not worth focusing on or worrying much about. Um, there are no important forces in American life advocating for racism. You need to, and as blacks, we need to ask ourselves why we have become so dependent on this delusion that we live in a, a, a society that is intent on keeping us down. That's over with. It isn't that kind of, it's just over with. We need to face ourselves more frankly. You guys, as 75% of all black children born out of wedlock. You understand the kind of dysfunction just that statistic alone, that's a problem. And now who's going to fix that? The government? 
Um, we, you know, we, there has to be, right now we have a, an identity as blacks that's victim focused. We're victims, which basically is designed to tap into white guilt and get, the, get them to give us all kinds of little, basically crumbs. And we're just sort of locked into that. And, we, uh, and, and there's no examination of how self-reliance, um, more personal responsibility for one's decisions in life, that these are the things that now determine our fate. And, and again, I, I blame a lot of this on the original oppression. We weren't, that was not an experience that taught us these things, these values and principles that other people take for granted. Well, we've now got to take, those, take up those principles. Uh, we've now got to stop thinking of ourselves as victims and think of ourselves as free men and women in this world with every kind of opportunity. Life is tough for everybody, uh, no doubt about that, but, but free people are free to, to move from one thing to another, to find themselves, to find their voice, to find out what they can do in life. And to me, that's blackness. That's blackness, or it ought to be. What is passes for blackness now is just a kind of mindless mimicry of anger and resentment um, that is, is, uh, struck me with the NFL as, as, as really a, an instance of pathos, where it's sad. It's just sad to see these football players out there on their knee when they can't even articulate what they're protesting against. I can tell you that Martin Luther King knew what he was protesting against. He articulated it uh, as, as superbly as is possible. And people responded. The country responded. These, these players today, Black Lives Matter and other sorts of, of groups, um, are pathetic. There's no other, there's no nice way to say it. They, they are, they just sadden you. They don't inspire you. They sadden you. Affirmative action? As, Still as needed? Said, Do away you know, with it? I have an ambivalent uh, position on affirmative action. As I've said, if the Ku Klux Klan had invented a social policy to keep black people down, they could not have done a better job than affirmative action. But I have a very mild, mild point of view about these matters. Um, no, affirmative action just basically says uh, what's important about you is the color of your skin, the very thing that was important about us when we were oppressed. When do we get to be human beings? When do we get to be people who compete on their own merit? So now I get accepted at Harvard, and I'm at Harvard, and I'm on the campus. And everybody there knows I wouldn't be there were it not for affirmative action. And you, they're going to rub that in my face. And, and they're going to diminish me. And so I'm, I'm fighting all over again for my humanity. Wasn't one, one fight enough? I've got to, I've, we now have to overcome the blemish, the, the diminishment uh, that affirmative action imposed on us, again, driven by white guilt. Whites are so blind to the humanity of blacks that they put a program like this, forced them into it. 
It's not. It's not invo- It's it's not. That's right. You can't opt out. You can't opt out. <clears throat> you're 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 in it, and and then you have to make. You have to rationalize that, and by saying you're a victim. And we're back in the same the same game again. You're a, you're. I'm a victim, and so therefore I deserve this, and I don't have to become competitive. Um, and so so affirmative action is is the sort of archetypal. Um, re-oppression of people. That is an oppressive system that you've inflicted uh, on black Americans so that you can get an optical, an optic that shows you to be innocent of racism, even as you are practicing. A few last questions, Shelby. To return to your column in the Wall Street Journal, quote, the oppression of black people is over with, we blacks are today a free people, close quote. The response to that column among African-Americans? I'm sure that, that uh, um, they will be apoplectic. And this is this, and thus prove my point. Um, because we, we un, you, you see all the damage done over the last 60 years with, uh, by focusing on our victimization and so forth. Well, rather than, rather than say, oh, my goodness, we, we, in fact, it is over. Our oppression is over with. We really are free people. We scream to high heavens that steel is crazy, that uh, it's laughable. Uh, can't you see racism everywhere? White supremacy is just infused into the, literally the air of America. So that black people are, well, what is this, this longing for an identity, a black identity grounded in victimization is a longing for an excuse to not accept the challenge of freedom. It is a way to escape that challenge. Shelby, quotation here. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in his 2003 opinion in Grutter versus Bollinger, a case that, against his wishes, permitted universities to continue affirmative action. But here's what Clarence Thomas wrote in his opinion. I believe blacks can achieve in every avenue of American life without meddling. Close quote. You're with Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. Here's the question. Let me give you a pretty complete list of the prominent African-Americans who are with you and Justice Thomas. It's Shelby Steele, and it's Clarence Thomas, and it's Tom Sowell, and I have two fingers left. I'm sure there are some that I'm not aware of. <laughs> but where, there are some, yes. I'm, okay, so where are the other voices? Do you, do you, do you, are there some young voices coming up? Are, are you hopeful as you survey the scene? Um, yes, I am hopeful. Um, because, you know, I think attrition solves certain problems. Uh, how long can you, can you go on in delusion? Um, you know, how, it, it takes more and more labor. Uh, again, the NFL protest was, was important to me because it, there it was. This is so over with. This is so, so silly. that And whites... Backed away from football. I mean, the viewership went down. The ticket sales went Shelby, down. Shelby, could I? I don't even know how to express this exactly. But I can tell you 
what a lot of my friends were, wait a minute, we just went through eight years of an African-American president, and every one of those young African-American men who's taking a knee is a millionaire. But you know what? Whites don't get to say, what the heck are you guys thinking? What they do is they just turn off the channel. There's, right. some, there's something operating so that... It, the, Everything that goes around comes around, to use a, 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 an overworn uh, cliche. I mean, it, and, one of the things I, and one of the things I think that I place some hope in um, is I, I look for whites, uh, it's what, what I call race fatigue, <clears throat> um, that as, as we keep going down this path, Whites are going to become more and more immune to it. Um, and I think the, foot, the NFL football protest was a good example of that. Whites have now said, we're not going to come out in public, but privately, we don't believe you anymore. We think you're a fraud. We don't think you're that oppressed. You know, we can't say anything because then you'll just call us racist and we'll, we'll pay another way. But we don't buy it. And you, I believe that America is going to see more and more whites turning away, um, disbelieving. It doesn't mean that they're going to become racist. It means that they're, not, they're, they're going to see the reality, which is that you, to blacks, you have not yet taken enough responsibility for the freedom that you enjoy. This is a hard thing. But I can tell you, if, if we got up tomorrow morning and white America said that in some symbolic way, everything would be changed. So, Shelby, where do you see, I'm just thinking back to the civil, I mean, it is not insignificant that Martin Luther King Jr. was the reverend Martin Luther King Jr., that the basis of so much of the moral energy of the civil rights movement was the black, the African-American church. Has, it, does that, is that institution, where, where do you see the voices? Where, is, where, where do those who agree with you place their feet when to set themselves to speak and to try to pursue this, to, to say what you're saying? Well, we're at a point at this, uh, uh, at this time when, when there aren't that many, when, when sad to say, um, blacks who do that uh, are going to be instantly called Uncle Toms, just as whites who do that are going to be called racist. The blacks who are not in the victim-focused identity, they're going to be called Uncle Toms and rejected and so forth. And, but there are, I believe, millions of people on both sides, whites and blacks, who know something's wrong, who know this is not real, this can't be depended on in the future. <clears throat> and so, you know, the... the uh, more blacks voted for Donald Trump than uh, for, for Mitt Romney. Where'd that come from? You tell me. I'm puzzled uh, by that, too. I, I know people. I have friends who, who I never, would, I never th would have dreamed that they would have done anything but vote Democratic, who just liked the honesty of the man. Got it. The so, the, you know, he, he's not let me, let me give you patronizing. A, let me give you a, a possible president and then return to the president. The possible president is Oprah Winfrey. No. <laughs> really? You don't think that she would have an opportunity to speak to African-Americans and to say the, or, or you think she just wouldn't say the kinds of things that you were saying now? Uh, she's had an opportunity to say these kinds of things and she is just terrified. Okay. 
Uh, and so if, if, in other words, she's, she's not a person who's going to break this, this lock. She's, she is, uh, nothing against Oprah Winfrey. I admire her as an entrepreneur and a, a personality and celebrity in every way. And she's, she's smart lady. Um, and maybe she will run, you know, maybe I, who can predict what America will do, um, Will she break this log jam? Her popularity is based on this log jam being in place. And to say all of a sudden that blacks are not victims anymore, that they have to start making it, they have to pick up more self-reliance and responsibilities. Uh, would she be so loved, so admired? Um, she's hiding behind a, a, the, the, the conventional sort of conventional wisdom. Uh, don't rock this boat. Uh, if she starts to rock the boat, um, I can't. Uh, I, she, she, but if she maybe did, she's the more, one to do it. You'd say more power to her. I'd she, say more. I'd say she. I'd say she would have a chance to change, change history. All right. Donald Trump is he racist? No, he's not racist. Is he helping Africa? Let me say this. Yeah. What, is, what is a racist? I have racist impulses. I've never met a human being who didn't. We will always have to watch out for those impulses in ourselves. The, the, they are automatic. They are reflexive. They're not reflective. They're reflexive. And uh, we, will, we will always have to watch out for for that and make them utterly impermissible. Um, so the, the point is, is that you, we, we, we can't just say, we can't use racism politically anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, we're, no, we're no longer in a place where racism exists, yes, but is racism a problem? No. And you, I, <coughs> I've heard you mention that you're impressed that race just doesn't seem to matter to Trump. That's right. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think that I don't think Donald Trump is getting up in the morning and saying, you know what? I have to figure out how to keep do a better job of keeping black people down today. Okay. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I, um, uh, I think when he went to Harlem during his campaign and he went to the black church and he leaned over the podium and he said, what have you got to lose? He spoke more honestly to black people than any person of his stature in my memory. And some, some black people heard that. What are you going to keep going back to the party that keeps offering you the very things that, that, keep, that oppress you? Um, you know, it, we're due for some changes, and uh, hopefully they'll come sooner than, uh, than later. Last question, Shelby. Let me quote Frederick Douglass. The great, mm -hmm. the former slave. In regard, this is uh, 1863. In regard to the colored people, there is always more that is benevolent, I perceive, than just manifested toward us. What I ask for the Negro is not benevolence, not pity, not sympathy, but simply justice. The American people have always been anxious to know what they shall do with us. Do nothing, nothing. with us. Your interference is doing us positive injury, close quote.
That's Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. speaking to white Americans in 1863. Last question. What does Shelby Steele say to white Americans today? Well, I couldn't say anything better than that. That is, that is uh, I'm very, I've quoted that myself. I've used it. Um, I'm a great fan of Frederick Douglass. He's the greatest uh, of all time. Uh, what truth? How long is it going to take us to absorb that message, uh, so simply put, yet so um, absolutely, so absolutely uh, true. And um, um, what I what I would say to whites is, have a little more faith in yourself. Do you have ill will toward people of different races and backgrounds? And you obviously know that's something you cannot indulge. That's it. That's it. Shelby Steele, author of the classic book, The Content of Our Character, and most recently of Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. For Uncommon Knowledge in the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm -hmm.